Hello, I'm Ed Needham, editor of the fabulous literary magazine Strong Words, and this is my podcast, The Five Rules of Writing. In each episode, I speak to a most excellent writer in a particular genre about how they do it. And if you'd like to know more about Strong Words, and specifically how to subscribe, go to www.strong-words.co.uk and you'll be whisked straight to the website. So hello, welcome to the Five Rules of Writing, brought to you by Strong Words magazine. Now this is a podcast where I talk to writers about the five things they know to be true in writing whatever it is that they write for a living. So whether that is popular science or Sherlock Holmes homoerotica, there are some aspects of their work that are absolutely non-negotiable. My guest today, with one hand edits GQ magazine, and with the other writes at times fairly hefty books on the subjects of music, politics, and popular culture with quite brisk regularity. And two of his most recent books have been thorough, no stone unturned oral biographies, one of David Bowie and an oral history of the new romantic movement called Sweet Dreams. So here to share some of the secrets of the oral biographer, Dylan Jones. Dylan, welcome. Very good to, uh, very, very good to see you, Ed. Thank I, you. Although yeah. I, I, I am... Um, uh, whatever I do doesn't sound as exciting as, as, as writing homoerotic Sherlock Holmes fiction, I have to say. That's well, a genre a, that's passed me by. Well, there is a, a recent uh, spread in Strong Words magazine with a publishing an independent publishing company called Improbable Press, right. who focus almost exclusively on Holmes homoerotica. Wow. So um, okay. well, that's there you go. Know. That niche is filled. Okay, well, um, I missed that. Um, as you know, I'm uh, uh, I'm a big fan of your magazine, and I think it's it's brilliant. A, it's it's brilliant that anybody should attempt such a thing in this day and age. And B, the, I think the content is brilliant too. So, congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you for your kind words. Now, but few people fill more pages in publishing the New Dylan. Your your bill for printer ink cartridges must be quite something to behold. <laughs> Do you? Do you have a strict timetable? Is it kind of weekdays for GQ, Saturday and Sunday mornings for your books? Um, I've always written a lot. My, a lot of my work uh, for quite a con- uh, considerable time now has been uh, has been sort of managerial. But um, I don't have hobbies. I don't play golf. I don't go swimming. I don't go cycling. Um, I go to the gym, but that's about it. So my third space is writing, and I don't wish to... Uh, diminish other people's work or indeed my own but it's something that uh yeah that's my safe space is going off writing and um uh, i'm in the lucky uh, position at the moment of, of being able to do that plus of course with lockdown i mean work has actually as most people um can uh, um can testify work has actually become harder and there's more of it but you still you, you know all those hours that you're not spent commuting or lunching or having real meetings or traveling that all of that suddenly opens up so um yeah but the that's a very long answer to your very short question but yeah I'm very uh prescriptive and very particular about when I write yeah and which are you more sort of naturally inclined towards Dylan the collegiality of magazines or the solitude of the author uh both actually and I think that um one of the things which um, uh, only an idiot would take issue with is is that um, if you're in the creative world, and 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 I mean being in a creative world in the financial market as much as being 
in journalism, you need to be in in an office with other people. Um, we I spent uh, pretty much most of last year in our office because we were producing our events at the end of the year. And so two or three days a week, there would be about 12 people in the office, a sort of core team. And it was fantastic because you just achieve so much more. And, the, and in the time that it would take me to walk from the creative director's office to my office, having made a decision, you're, you've, that decision has changed three times and been improved three times because you've met other people. That doesn't happen on Zoom calls. But uh, so I'm a keen advocate of getting back to the office. Quite. Now, you've, you've written in written books insufferable to writers you've written anthologies dictionaries conventional biographies how did you arrive at the oral biography format um it was actually it wasn't my idea it was an it was um it was uh an idea that an american uh, friend of mine had uh, who's an editor and he and he called me up he said um uh, i'm thinking of doing an oral biography of david Bowie, is this of any interest? And Bowie had just died. And I immediately said no, because uh, I'd already written a book on David Bowie. Uh, and I thought, uh, I, A, I don't want to read this. B, I don't want to do it. That sort of chapter's over. And then I slept on it. And I, and, um, I emailed him the next day, because obviously he would have been asleep. And I said, I want to do this. And I suddenly realized that, I, I, that not only did I want to do this more than anything else, but I didn't want any, anyone else to do it. Um, so I really enjoyed the process and um, it was- What made based. you change your mind though? Sorry? What made you change your mind? From because I started thinking about what it was. I, I think it's that thing of, of thinking, well, do I want to go out with that girl or not? Uh, and I thought, well, hold on. Someone else is going to go out with her if I don't go out with her. <laughs> so I absolutely have to call her now and it's the middle of the night. Um, but the idea, we, the idea that it was based on the- um, on the Plimpton book of Edie Sedgwick uh, to try and paint a portrait by speaking to people who you had to speak to uh, and trying to build a picture with um, unlikely voices as well as likely ones. And as I was working through the book, there were points when I realized that I needed to speak to that person who only had the, that one story, but I had to speak to that person because it had to go into the book. So I often say that with people who are writing features about subjects that have been written about endlessly. I said, you've forgotten to put in the boring bits. You need to go back and put in the pillars that people are going to want to read because there need to be something in there for the, uh, for the novice and there needs to be someone there, something in there for the, uh, for the expert. It's like when we do pages on golf, for instance, something which I don't really have any interest in. I said, you have to read that as a novice and learn something, and you have to read that as an expert and learn something, uh, which is, as you know, not an easy thing to do. And these two um, books that I mentioned, especially the Bowie one and the, the New Romantics one, Sweet Dreams, these are pretty hefty volumes. What, what made you decide that more is more? Well, I have constant tussles with my editor. In fact, I'm having a, um, I'm writing uh, an oral biography of the 90s at the moment, which involves speaking to musicians, journalists, politicians, artists, um, uh, publicists, etc., etc. Yeah, and I'm having a tussle at the moment because I want it to be big because um, it's not from an ego point of view because a lot of my books have been quite thin. But I think if you're attempting something like this, you need... The more voices you have, if you've chosen well, the more voices you have, the better. From Strong Words magazine... These are the five rules of writing. 
So let's uh, let's have a look at your five rules of writing uh, oral biography then, Dylan. Your first rule, you said, have a have a starting point, but don't let the starting point determine your journey. That should be dis that should be guided by the people you interview. Yeah. Um, so how does this work in practice? How do you get people going? Uh, how it works in practice is that um, uh, well, how I get people going, I just ask them what they would doing what they were doing and then what was happening in their world and how they felt about the world around them and how they feel about that world now um but but if i'm not learning anything by talking to people then it's pointless doing my job i mean i'm not coloring uh, i'm interviewing these people because i want them to tell me what they they think and i will have an idea and say well I think this, and what you really want is for someone to say, no, that's wrong because of X, Y, and Z. Um, so uh, that's crucially important. And often I'll say that to people kind of knowing or hoping that they'll disagree with me. Uh, and the book that I'm writing at the moment about that period, that period in the nineties tends to be contextualized by its end, by its demise. You look at the sort of Britpop Cool Britannia period, and people go, "Well, uh, Diana died. Oasis bad, made a bad pop record, and it was the ultimate disappointment of New Labour because of the Iraq War." And so the entire period seems to be contextualised by that, even by people who are having a great time during it. So, so my starting point is: this was a fantastic period of British cre creativity. You're in the middle of it. What do you think? Okay, and, and one thing, one of the, I always find with interviewing people, Dylan, that one of the hard bits is asking the difficult questions. There's always a, you know, it's it's fine sort of, you know, doing the relatively straightforward small talk or promotional, um, you know, whatever they're there for. But when you when you have to ask them a difficult question, it, 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 how do you how do you cope with that? Do you mind asking people really quite awkward questions? Um, often there will be an understanding of, of what we're going to be talking about. I think if someone is famous or infamous for doing something, you're not calling them up to ask how their cat is. Um, I mean, I'm interviewing Tony Blair next week and we will be discussing a variety of topics, but obviously the issue of conflict in, in, in conflicted lands will, will, will come up, but he expects that. Um, it's not meant to be... I mean, the reason I'm talking to these people because is I want them to feel that they're taking ownership of something. So it can't have, it can't be attritional in that way. Um, I want their their honesty, and there's a certain amount. Even though I'm I'm steering things and I'm editing the book, it has to be objective, or else there's no point doing it. There's no point in me thinking, well, this person is really bad. And I'm going to speak to 150 people who are going to tell me this, this person's really bad. You, it needs to be nuanced and it needs to not only tell me new things, it needs, more importantly, it needs to tell the reader new things. And has anyone got the hump? Um, no. Well, I'll tell you what happens is that you, um, people get the hump afterwards because they will feel that they their recollections or their history or their legacy or their quotes should not be next to this other person because they somehow demean them or diminish them. Occasionally people will take issues with the way you've used quotes, um, but then people do when you interview them for newspapers or magazines anyway. Occasionally, I mean, I when I was doing the Bowie book, 
there was a woman I spoke to, a lovely woman, an, an artist who had a relationship with um, Bowie, who was the inspiration for the song Heroes. Uh, and I interviewed her several times um, and she gave me some amazing material. But in the end, she decided she didn't want her story told because her story was too personal and she didn't want her stories abutting other people's stories, which I respected and didn't use any of the material. Okay, and what, what happens when someone's, you know, someone hugely contradicts someone else's version of events? Perfect. I mean, you're, you, you almost want that. Um, and there are various moments in, uh, in the sort of history of Cool Britannia, which if you're interested in that period are, are quite notable. And actually what you want, I mean, I'm doing a, uh, I'm doing a section on the Vanity Fair. Um, there was an issue of Vanity Fair that was devoted to Cool Britannia that came out in 1997. Um, and to hear all the conflicting voices is fantastic because you're painting this extraordinary picture. Uh, and hopefully it'll be an extraordinary picture for people who are interested in it, who weren't there at the time. Um, and so you want that. You, you want that conflict. You don't necessarily. I mean, yes, differences of opinion are obviously interesting. But for, but for someone to, be, to, to say emphatically it was four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon and for someone you interview a week later to say it was Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. I mean, you, you want that. You encourage it. Mm -hmm. Good. Now, rule two, and I think this may be the fence at which I fall if I were to attempt this. You say, um, interview a lot of people. The three I have done have required well over 100 people before they start to take shape. How do you know when you've got enough? When the editor says, give me any more material, <laughs> you're fired. Um, you, I, I remember John Savage, the great John Savage, saying that when he was writing, and I'm not comparing myself or my books to anything that John does because he is uh, he is the master. Um, but he said when he was compiling and writing London's Dreaming, his epic book about punk, he says, I mean, I interviewed the people I needed to interview, but I could have interviewed twice as many. You just got to stop at some point because it's not an encyclopedia. Um, and as, as I say, the three books I've done, there are probably about 150 voices in each book and a hundred of those will be people I've actually spoken to and and the rest will be pieces that I've either written or quotes I've got from other people or printed sources. Um, but yeah, I think it's about a hundred people. So my first thought when I saw that was, uh, so that's a hundred plus interviews to transcribe. Is there any more disagreeable job in all of journalism than transcribing an interview? Okay, two very important points here. A, never, ever, ever, ever write down what you think that person said. Because I guarantee that if you play the tape back, it'll be probably the opposite of what that person said. Uh, I remember once this, someone describing interviewing Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. I can't remember who the journalist was. It may not have actually have been a journalist. It may have been a friend of theirs. They're saying that you talk to Keith Richards, and you ramble on and sort of talking through his chin. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, he didn't, hasn't really told me anything. And then you play the tape back and it's just full of all these nuggets of <laughs> recollections. And Jack is exactly the opposite. You know, it's very conversational, very chatty, very charming. But you actually play it back and there's deliberately nothing there because <laughs> he doesn't give stuff away because he's, he's kind of a different kind of person. Um, and my second point is that you know 
And I think if you're experienced and like you, I've been doing this, this job a very long time, you know that when you're interviewing someone, you know precisely how much you're going to use. And often some people have got a, a one anecdote that has been so finely honed over the years and you know that's all you want. And so you can, you can sit with someone and go, you're 300 words. And that's what you'll get. You'll get 300 words. However, if you're interviewing someone like Martin Scorsese, you'll take anything. You'll literally include the conversation that he has with the person who brought him this cup of tea just because it's Martin Scorsese. But yeah, I think you can look at someone and say, you're about, you know, in, in fact, this book I'm doing at the moment, there are some people who, some people I've been very specific about and are for very particular things. But if I've asked someone for a long interview uh, and I doubt whether anyone has got more than sort of 2,000 words in, in the book. And most people are probably about 900 words, three or four quotes, sometimes five. Okay. And you've also worked with a lot of great interviewers. You've commissioned some extraordinary writers in your time. Which of their tricks have you added to your own interrogation techniques? Um, I think you pick up stuff. Because um, people you commission tend to be better than you, than, than, than you are um because you're you're uh you're commissioning people because they do a better job i remember once and i don't think i've attempted to do this but it was as an example of something that was quite extraordinary i would remain i wish i had the tape i had the tape for ages and i lost it and which is strange because i never lose anything years ago about 30 years ago i worked at the observer and um eddie murphy was available for interview but it was such a prescriptive, tightly controlled interview that we almost didn't do it. We were being offered 20 minutes in a hotel room in Los Angeles um, where, you could, where he could only talk about this one particular project. And he, 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 he was about to release some awful rap record. I mean, it was terrible, absolutely beyond redemption. <laughs> and we thought, well, should we do this? And we decided, no, we're not going to do this. And then we thought again, it's, like, it's Eddie Murphy. And Eddie Murphy was really hot and really famous at the time. So we said, how can we get away with this? And we decided to send Hugh McElvenny, the world's greatest sports writer, uh, then and now, even though he's deceased. And um, he was amazing because he basically approached it. I don't know what research he did, but basically his first question was, so Eddie, <laughs> Eddie, you've made this record. And he talked about, and you know, what Hugh knew and cared about rap music was could be written on the back of a pencil. Um, but he asked this question. The question had about, about 14 clauses in it. It was incredibly long. And the gist of it was that you've, you've made this, this record and DDD and, and, and the gist of it was, and how does that affect you as a man? And suddenly, Eddie Murphy, we, we had adhered to the rules by asking a question about this record, but Eddie Murphy had been suddenly asked some sort of metaphysical question about what it meant to be Eddie Murphy, and he was off and running. We had an amazing interview, a cover story, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that was, that was a, uh, that, I wouldn't say that was a gift. That was an art and something that Hugh had really developed. It was very impressive. Brilliant. Now, you've, you mentioned, um, you've kind of touched on your third point already, uh, Dylan. So your third rule, you say, be strict with your material. Yeah. You say some people, don't, as you mentioned, some people only have one anecdote, while others can talk for hours, and you know you'll use most of it. But do you ever come across those who can talk for hours, yet have no anecdotes? Yes. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm, I'm uh, going through a transcription at the moment of someone who I interviewed a couple of weeks ago. 
I was doing it this morning when I got up and um, uh, I read the paper and then came down to the study. Um, and it's, I, I need it because this person is a name, but it's fingerall. <laughs> it really is. I remember yeah. watching um, Parkinson once when they had, he had uh, Jimmy Cagney on and it was very old Jimmy Cagney and uh, Parkinson was just trying everything, you know, so, you know, what was, it must've been quite something working with Humphrey Bogart and yeah. he would just go, yep. And then kind of nod his head and Parkinson, you could almost see the drops of sweat coming yeah. off him. You know, what was it like appearing yeah. opposite Gene Harlow as a young man and Cagney would go, ah, incredible, incredible. And that was it. He just couldn't make him move. He, you know, he, he, I think uh, he just had to wind it up. He was getting close to the what's your favourite colour question. What do you do when you can't get people to budge at all? Well, it's, it's different because obviously if you're doing that on television, if it's live, it's, it's, it has a very different dynamic and you have to think in a very different way. And I do a lot of this at um, festivals. I, I, I am very closely associated with the Hay Festival. I do a lot of interviews there. And if someone clams up, actually i get i don't get angry but i get a little bit more demonstrative because i think if you're in front of people if you've got 1500 people out there i remember going to see i think i won't say the person's name because it wasn't her but it's the famous famous actress um i think it was charlotte rampling i think she'd written a, a book and basically I know this isn't being filmed, but she, she, she basically sat there in her chair, crossed her arms, and you could see her thinking, okay, come on then. And the poor woman, I think it was Grace Dent who was interviewing her, same thing. And I thought to myself, not only have you wasted our time bringing you here, but there's 1,500 people out there who want to hear you. They've paid to hear you. Mm. So actually, if someone does that on stage, I actually get a bit aggressive. I'm uh, going to say, well, if you're just going to give me a, th I mean, I don't say this, but I mean, you can't sit there and say, give a three word answer. You've got to tell a story. So tell me that story. You have to say, tell me that story about when you did X. Well, it's, it's very short sighted as well, isn't it? An event like that, because it also guarantees that 1500 people aren't going to buy your book. Correct. If, uh, if you don't give people a bit. But so what do you have any sort of last gasp techniques when you know people are sitting on a pile of gold and they won't give you anything more than small talk? You steer them. Yeah, and, and you ask them to repeat that story. And when I was doing the Bowie book, you could, they, they, they tend to do it less in person, but if you were doing something on the phone, when you say, tell, can you tell that story about when you went into the hotel room, et cetera, et cetera, and you can sort of hear, you, you, you can hear the sigh, but you need it. I mean, when you, obviously when you're writing a piece, if someone doesn't give you that, you say, well, you, you know, you can weave in the story from a variety of different sources. And actually, I do that with these books, and I think it's completely legitimate. I'm not trying to pass these interviews off as myself, but you use material from elsewhere as building blocks. Um, but you, yeah, you, you would hope that people are going to do that themselves. And there are, there are probably few people now remaining in Britain and America who who haven't been interviewed by you at some point, but of all the people you've interviewed, is there, is there one that stands out as the most pleasing of all? Uh, I don't think that what she gave me was gold. I think it was silver, but I remember years ago, I just, I just, I just, I've been on holiday and I traveled across the, um, we, I did a, a, a corny American road trip 
with uh, uh, my best man and we drove from east coast to west coast could have took a couple of weeks to do that as years ago when I was at the Sunday Times had a fantastic time brilliant such a laugh I recommend it to any 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 middle-aged man and um, <laughs> uh, and we got to Los Angeles and I was meant to interview Shirley McLean for the Sunday Times magazine and she was sick so um, my friend Robin went home and I stayed in LA for an extra week, which wasn't a hardship, obviously, but um, I had to wait for her to be not sick. So I, uh, eventually she was fine to see me. Uh, and so I traveled up, I drove up to Mal Malibu. I remember it was her birthday, weirdly. And, and I needed to, I thought I should take her some flowers. And I went to Malibu and I thought Malibu is the most expensive place in the world. God, I don't know how much flowers cost. And so, I don't know, I think I, and it turns out flowers in Malibu cost the same anywhere else. So I turned up at <laughs> Good to know. Shirley, Shirley MacLaine's house with this completely ostentatious bouquet of flowers. <laughs> she obviously thought this guy's a stalker. But you know what? I sat down, and I don't say this uh, with, with any side. She didn't know who I was. She didn't know who she was speaking for. She was never going to read the interview. She, it was for a terrible film called Guarding Tess with Nicolas Cage. She's probably never seen the film. She was contracted to do a certain amount of media. Uh, she'd been interviewed 10,000 times in her life. And so, but because of that, and you go into her room and on her piano is pictures of her with Kennedy and Frank Sinatra and Warren Beatty, not like pictures of me with my kids, you know, and you go, wow, you've had a life, you know. Um, and I just started asking the question that I realized quite quickly, she'd ask me anything. She, you know, she'd literally tell me anything. And because of that, she was a great interview. And I do think it is that if you interview people who have been famous for a very long time and are used to doing this, most of them, some of them are complete, see you next Tuesdays and uh, have no truck. But um, I think most of them will just say, yeah, sure. There was once, uh, we were um, a friend of mine who produced a film starring Michael Caine. Um, it was a sort of vigilante film about 10 years ago um, about a, a pensioner who lived in South East London. I can't remember the name of the film. Um, anyway, and we had a little dinner for um, the producer, Chris, my friend, and, uh, and Michael Caine. And Michael Caine came along and DDD. And um, it was quite a long dinner, not many people, about 20 people. And at one point I just stood up and thanked everybody and thanked M Michael Caine because he was the most famous person in the room. And he wasn't meant to speak, but he just stood up and then started talking. Uh, and obviously he was lovely and funny and, and great, but because it was quite late and I think people had quite a lot of drink and because it was quite intimate, people started asking him questions. And he started answering these questions. It was, it was amazing. And at one point, and I can't say the name, obviously, he said, um, is, um, you've worked with so-and-so, haven't you? He said, yeah. He said, is he gay? And, and Michael Caine said, well, I wouldn't say he was gay, but if they were shorthanded, he'd help out. And <laughs> I thought that was lovely. That's amazing. I mean, I'm always astonished that uh, people I interview answer are prepared to answer my sort of gormless questions which obviously they've had to ask answer in in one form or another dozens of times you know yeah. in a promotional cycle and they answer questions with the same sort of enthusiasm or commitment as if they'd never heard that question before and i think that's that's uh that's something that always you know differentiates one sort of type of uh you know interviewee from another those who really go into it with that level of professionalism I always take yeah 
I think that I think with with doing doing these books, I think the important thing is they need to trust me. Um, and it's a different relationship to interviewing someone for a particular project. For instance, um, for the Bowie book, I had to call up, I had to communicate with a lot of close personal friends of Bowie after he died to convince them to talk to me. And it, you feel like an ambulance chaser. It's like, oh, he's great, he's just died. We're, we're whacking out this book. So the, your first approach needs to be, you need to put more effort into that first approach than anything else. <laughs> and that first email that you send to the agent or to the person or to the assistant or the wife or the mistress, that needs to, that needs to basically tell Semaphore that I am a good person, I, am, I have a track record, and this is going to be a thing that you are going to be happy that you've contributed to. That's quite difficult. Uh, and when you're speaking to them, when you're interviewing them, I mean, you did something very kindly for my book. You need to know that it's going to be used properly, um, that you need to know that you can trust me, that I'm just going to not, not going to contextualise it or cut it up or, or patronise you or use it in a way that you're going to be angry with. Uh, and I hope that's the case. Um, and you need to do that. But I think when you're interviewing someone and you need that person to tell you things they perhaps don't want to tell you, I actually don't think I'm very good. I talk too much. I play my tapes back and say, just fucking, just, just, just stop talking. Just say, did you love her? And stop talking. But I think I make this, I still make the same mistake. I'm trying to impress that person about how many of their films I've seen or how many football matches I was at, or they don't care. They've literally, Tom Hibbert used to be the best at this. Tom Hibbert used to write for Q magazine. He'd ask someone a question and just shut up. And he would allow the celebrity to fill the gap. And he didn't, he wasn't trying to impress these people. He didn't care what they thought of him. Mark yeah. Ellen also said an interesting thing. says, when you go to interview someone, you should look boring. Because <laughs> if you turn up with a yellow cravat, the, the other person's thinking, well, hold on, I'm the star here, not the guy in the yellow cravat. And this issue of trust is a big one as well, I think, because um, I interviewed uh, Tracy Thorne a while ago. And she writes in, also wrote in one of her books about how um, very few journalists are aware of how nerve wracking it can be to hand over your information in the form of an interview. Because as you say, you, you, once you've given it to a journalist, you don't know how they're <laughs> going to use it. You don't know what they're going to do. And that, to, uh, that naturally makes um, celebrities very nervous. Yeah. How, you know, I'm not sure I have a solution for this other than to just be consistent and try not to uh, damage people's reputations accidentally. I, I think that, um, I think it comes down to transparency. And I think that, I mean, I think if you're a fairly good judge of character, you can kind of, you can tell if someone's a good person or a bad person. And actually being a, being in the media for quite some time, I've had, I've had a number of people interview me, and I can I can tell immediately. I can tell immediately if someone is going if, if if this is a good thing for me to do, or if they're going to stitch me up. And particularly about 15, 20 years ago, when uh, as you know the men's magazine market was more ribald, and we relied upon um, a certain amount of, of female flesh, and the magazines had to have more far more of a libido. You're not allowed to have a libido anymore, but. Um, 
I could tell when I was someone from the Guardian came to interview me if they if I was mad enough to let them in the door. <laughs> I could tell by question one what what this piece was going to be like. I could write it for themselves, and I uh, and there are people who. I suppose that the flip side is that if you interview people, that thing about asking a question and shutting up, if, if someone's had really good media training and they are a celebrity, someone asks you a question, they answer the question and then they shut up. Okay. Now, and that's really, really impressive because you know you're not going to get anything else. Good. Rule four. You say record everything. You already touched on this. Record everything. Your recollections are never as good. It sounds like you learnt this the hard way. Um, I think that if you are recording something and you say you spent two hours interviewing someone and you know there are three interesting anecdotes and you can't be bothered to, to, to transcribe the tape because you know what they said. I guarantee, I bet my house on it, that the three anecdotes that you write down through your recollection recollections will use completely different words to the words they actually said regardless of what your memory is like not only will the words be different but often the inference will be different too um i w i haven't found it out the hard way in a in a way that sort of let him have it i mean it hasn't caused someone's death but um yeah i think that's um uh, that's a kind of a schoolboy schoolgirl error to do that and did you ever interview Prince, who famously refused to let people bring recording devices or notebooks into interviews with him? Uh, no, I met Prince on one occasion, but I never interviewed him. And I was never, I know many people who had that experience where you go to Minneapolis, you're in the, you're in the, 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 the standard inn, and then you get a call at nine o'clock on a Saturday and say, oh, he'll see you now. And they send a car for you and you go up there and of course... You listen to him rehearse for six hours and you get no interview. But of course, you get a lot of colour. And the colour was always purple. So, yeah. And and did he tell you anything on, on the one occasion you did meet him? No, it was extraordinary. It was some fancy dinner at a museum. Uh, and he made an entrance. And obviously, his... I love that thing where Paul Simon says, you call me diminutive. You mean short, don't you? You mean short. Um, he came in, very tiny man. And he had, brilliant, had like, I think, 11 women with him. The big table for 12, you know, candles, um, the whole thing. It was some sort of charity thing. And it was, uh, I just enjoyed watching him in his sort of pomp. But no, he didn't say anything of interest at all. Yeah, I imagine uh, just spectating on Prince is a, is a delight in itself. It's a book. <laughs> Might be one. <laughs> watching Prince. Yes. Uh, now, number five, you say, it's also something you mentioned a little bit, but you said don't pester people who don't get back to you find a better voice instead. Now, I guess one of the, one of the things that made, this made me think is that uh, one is, you know, it's tempting to get a microphone in front of stars and celebrities, but in all the great sort of master servant films and television shows like Upstairs, Downstairs or Downton Abbey, it's always the staff who have a much clearer idea of what's going on so, than, the, than the sort of upstairs muckety mucks who are actually the you know, the sort of stars of the programme in a way. Do you find this, that you get the best information sometimes from behind the scenes, you know, rather than from the horse's mouth? I think sometimes. I mean, I've once, many years ago, about 25 years ago, maybe longer now, um, I was at the Sunday Times and we were doing a story on Shakespeare in Love, which was being filmed in London. Um, and it's not the kind of thing I normally did because we'd send someone to do it, someone whose job it was, someone who's much better. But for some reason, 
maybe no one was available, maybe I wanted to do it, maybe I did want to do it because it was Gwyneth Paltrow. So I went down, to, it was a cover story, it's a big deal in a time when the Sunday Times was still a, you know, I mean, it still is a big deal, but it was a, you know, the cover of the Sunday Times magazine then was, a, you know, it was a um, big deal. So anyway, I go down to Pinewood or Shepparton or wherever ever it was, and she was horrible, actually. 45 oh minutes, and she basically crossed her, crossed her legs, crossed her arms, and just gave me nothing. And she was borderline rude. Uh, she'd obviously been told to do this. It was part of her contract. She didn't want to do it. And she was sort of horrible, actually. I'm sure she isn't a horrible person, but she treated me dreadfully. And in many occasions, you just go back to the office and say, I didn't get anything. But, you know, this was a big production. We probably had vested interest in it. We probably, you know, um, uh, it, Fox probably owned the, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. But this thing had to be delivered. And, and I knew that. And I wasn't intending to do what I then did. But I basically spent all day there. And I went up to the caterer, the carpenter, the chauffeur, the makeup artist, literally everybody, and asked them one question. I said, what's she like? And the, the picture that was painted was uniformly <laughs> negative. And that became the piece, which is dumb, because she could have spent 45 minutes pretending to charm me. I would have been charmed, gone away and written a, a sort of, uh, hopefully a well-written puff piece, and everybody would have been happy. But she cut off her nose to spite her face. But the interesting thing was, that I, it would never have occurred to me to have done that. And I wasn't trying to paint a negative picture. I literally say, yeah, some people said, oh, she's lovely. But I would, you know, 70 percent of the people said, no, no, she's really tricky. And that became the piece. And is there anyone left for you to interview, Dylan? I always thought Satan at home would be the greatest ever interview. <laughs> Who's Actually, I'm, that's three o'clock today. Yeah, <laughs> I've got to travel. <laughs> um, oh, there are always interesting people. I mean, I do think that. Uh, I don't think this is a major revelation, but I think that the the people who are have been around forever, like I said before, tend to be amazing because a they know how to do it, and b they've lived. But people who become instantly famous and have extraordinary fame, even if they're very young, they are fascinating just by dint of being in that world. And it's usually, I remember being. Uh, backstage at, at, at Live 8, you know, the, the one that was in Hyde Park a couple, mm -hmm. uh, 20 years ago when Pink Floyd played and um, uh, uh, U2, uh, et cetera, et cetera, completely cast, a different cast list of people. And I had an appointment with someone backstage. Um, sorry, I made that sound very glamorous, but it wasn't very glamorous at all because there were, you know, millions of people backstage with all the pay bars and everything. And I remember Mariah Carey coming towards me, or rather I was coming towards Mariah Carey. And it was like, a, it was like a, this whole thing had been choreographed because she's quite diminutive too. But she must have had, and I'm not exaggerating, she must have had 40 security guards with her, mm -hmm. all coming towards me. And that's an impressive sight. And I think that a when you get... A phalanx, exactly. <laughs> when you get into the, the very sort of the inner, 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 inner sanctum and see how all that works. I always find that fascinating because it's always ridiculous. It's always unnecessary. Uh, and it's always like the Wizard of Oz. And then you meet the person and they're just sitting there having a cup of tea, um, probably oblivious to all this carnage that they're, they're causing around them. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, I definitely think there's a book in uh, spectating 
on celebrities you know this uh inside um uh don't ask them a single question just watch uh I think well whose yeah. idea is that is that yours or mine now this, uh, you this can, is a problem you can have that one dylan oh, thank uh, you very much I mean, yeah. you um I'm, I'm busy at the moment and you seem to be well, writing books. literally every word in your magazine <laughs> which is extraordinary to produce books at a, at a faster rate than anybody in uh in history so I think uh, it's probably best in your in your machine that one. But thank you so much for talking to me. Pleasure, it's, it's been fun. Hugely illuminating, and uh, oral biographers now have no excuse, or would be oral biographers have no excuse for not realising their dream. Thanks to your information. Cheers, Dylan. Cheers, Ed. Take care. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. Mm.